Welcome to the Creative Pro Podcast, where creative professionals become more creative and more professional. So in the current creative work environment, most of us spend our time crafting digital things, right? We work in pixel canvases at 72 pixels per inch set to RGB mode, and we export GIFs and JPEGs, PNGs, SVGs. And when creating, we look at a screen or we use a digital mouse or a pen. We import digital photography and we use digital design applications. And then the work, when it's done, we save it into digital folders that live somewhere in the cloud, I guess. We, we can work for years and never actually touch the work of our hands. So like it or not, the digital side of our craft, it's really not going anywhere. In fact, I think it'll only become more digital as we move from an age of reality to virtual reality, which I'm not a huge fan of, but here we go. It, it wasn't always this way though. Uh, when I first started in the creative arts, I remember making marker comps and showing them to clients. I'd have to show my drawing and explain the color and the photography style and the final art. And the client would just have to imagine it with me. I think few clients these days would be okay with that level of trust in the designer and the process. I also, I just loved package and print design. I've always loved like choosing the perfect paper stock and thinking through print techniques and getting creative with page sizes and how it feels in your hand. So here's, here's what I'm wondering. What does producing digital art only do to a creative over time? Does it fulfill the creative spirit the same way that producing art in real life does? I think you know where I'm going with this already. The answer would be no, it, it doesn't. But there's a lot more to it than that. I think we can look at the difference between digital and real art and just start to draw out some larger ideas about things like consumerism the pace of life, history, and learning from the past, and about creating a life that is meaningful and fulfilling. So to do this, we actually need to start with the famous American typography designer, Frederick Gowdy. Throughout his career in the early 1900s, Gowdy designed over 113 typefaces. Many of these have stood the test of time and have become standard typefaces that we all use today. Have you ever used copper plate? Yeah, I bet you have. Gaudi made that one. How about Gaudi old style or Italian old style, uh, Berkeley old style or Trajan? Yeah, so you're pretty familiar already with Gaudi. You probably just didn't know it yet. One of the funny things about Gaudi is that he was flat out against letter spacing lowercase fonts. His immovable opinion was that you could only track out or letter space uppercase type. He was once quoted to say, Anyone who would letter space in lowercase would steal sheep. So the next time you think about going overboard with your letter spacing, I bet you're going to think twice and hear Gaudi's voice in your head telling you that you had better make those letters uppercase before you track them out to 300 points and mess up the whole design. So Gaudi lived in a suburb of New York City. And one day in the 1920s, a young man, also an artist, moved next to Gaudi and the two became close friends. They would sit around and they would talk about fonts and hand lettering, wood versus steel block type, the value of a good pen, and what happened to the art when the paper had more fiber content. I would give anything to go back and listen to their conversations, not only because it would have been about type and design, some of my favorite subjects, but also because the young man's name that moved in next to Gaudi 
was none other than Eric Sloan. Now, this might not be a name you know yet, but Eric Sloan holds the unique position as being both one of my all-time favorite writers and one of my all-time favorite artists. Over the course of their friendship, Eric Sloan became an understudy of Gaudi and learned the craft of hand lettering and type design and sign painting. Later, he became famous for painting landscapes of early America. He's credited with over like 15,000 works of art, many of which are in, in museums all around the world, including the Smithsonian. If you're at a computer, just Google Eric Sloan paintings and bask in the warm palettes and the cloud layers and the old landscapes brought to life. In his paintings, you, you can feel something beyond the objects in the painting. You feel something wholesome, something slower, something more intentional. In reference to his paintings, he once said that he wasn't trying to paint the barn or the bridge or the sky. He was trying to paint the American spirit. Later in his career, he began writing about early American life and landscapes and even weather. Most of his books you can pick up and just sort of read from anywhere in the book. He'll often cover a piece of early American history or knowledge, such as how they might have built a barn or what a windmill was used for. And then he will beautifully illustrate the barn or the mill and the elements that he's writing about. He often then provides a little bit of social commentary about how we've culturally lost this important knowledge, craft, and maybe some of the values that made life meaningful. If you're going to start with any of Eric Sloan's books, I recommend reading The Diary of an Early American Boy. I also recommend finding an older first edition print because the publisher that prints the books now that you find on Amazon doesn't pay any attention to book design and how it should match the crafted content. But that's a rant for another day. The Diary of an Early American Boy is essentially a book about an actual diary from a 15-year-old boy growing up in America in 1805. So each chapter contains a section of the diary followed by Eric Sloan's commentary on the history and the details of what was happening at the time. This book was really my first introduction to Eric Sloan, so I'm a little biased, and I have Todd McCarter to thank for lending me a copy and introducing me to Eric Todd was my creative director back in the day and is someone that I've learned a great deal from. He's really one of the greatest creative minds I know, and he's also just a great human being. If I could summarize the things that Eric Sloan loved to write about, they would be typography, aviation, woodworking, philosophy, and American history, which is pretty much a list of my favorite things as well. So when I was introduced to Eric Sloan as an author, I only got a few pages in before I was hooked and knew that he was going to be one of my top five favorite authors. One of the major themes in all of Eric Sloan's books is that we as a people once valued the things around us. Things once took time and patience to make or acquire, whereas now everything around us is just cheaply made and purchased from Amazon Prime so that it arrive in two days, where we once valued hard work and craft and detail, quality, we now just value immediate satisfaction. We prefer buying a thousand cheap plastic goods that in no time will just add to the mass of a landfill or an island of ocean pollution. And we prefer these things over 
a few heirloom quality goods that will last generations. This is a problem maybe that runs deeper than economics or social trends. I think it's worth doing the hard work of figuring out what's really going on. Eric often points out that in our efforts to get more stuff and get it cheaply, we've actually robbed ourselves of some of the most basic and meaningful experiences of life. Let me read to you a section from one of his books. A candle might give less light than electricity, but if it came from the wax made in your own kitchen and dipped by your own mother, the light would suddenly become more meaningful, even precious. If you spun wool from your own sheep to make your own clothing, even a pair of socks would become valuable works of art and a special joy to wear. Our clothes might come from Chicago or Hong Kong, but we couldn't care less. Our food comes from somewhere, by truck or train, but what's the difference? The actual difference is that if you had dug your own well, you would savor the water like a fine wine. A house and furniture made from trees that you felled yourself would become museum pieces to you. Your whole life would be richer and more meaningful. Such was the awareness and spiritual richness of the early days that does not exist today. Okay, so how did we get from where we were to where we are? I think in many ways, we began to see the shortcomings of a mass-produced, disposable culture during the Industrial Revolution. Before the Industrial Revolution, you might have lived on a farm and did your work from the farm. It was likely that you made your income by crafting something such as iron nails. And so you'd spend much of your day making nails in the barn and some of your day tending to the land and the animals. There wasn't a divide between work and play. The two would be intertwined. There wasn't a divide between work life and home life. There was simply life and the work that had to be done within it. Your family unit would have been tightly knit. It's likely that your sons or your daughters would have been present, helping, learning, and sometimes just playing in the barn and hanging out with their dad. The mom and dad would both be helping each other with all of their endeavors. They both did whatever it took to get ready for the next season on the farm, to raise strong kids, and to tend to the growing seeds of faith, knowledge, and values. But as technology increased, people began to produce more and spend less time producing. And by the time the Industrial Revolution was in full swing, the father that once spent his day on the farm with his family would now spend 10 hours or more at the factory. He traded the pride of being a craftsman, making things for his family, to the hollow feeling of making subpar goods that the world would consume and throw away. The family unit became fractured. Beautiful, once cared for barns became dilapidated piles of rotten wood. And the once fruitful fields became overgrown and barren. Most of the external signs of craftsmanship, care, and beauty that our land was once rich in just disappeared. And then, perhaps worse, the internal signs of unrest began to take shape. His fathers became detached and despondent. So while the Industrial Revolution brought wealth, it came at a great cost to the American family and changed the way that we look at work and life and how they intertwine. So what does that mean for you as a creative practitioner who is more than likely building mostly digital products? A couple of things I think we can pull from all this. The first thing is just getting back to the farm 
And I don't think you need to buy a bunch of land or move to an actual farm. One of the good things that came out of the COVID era was an increase in remote work opportunities. I personally work remote, and for me, it's a dream come true. I truly cherish these little moments in my day where my kids come into my office and they give me a hug or they slide a note under the door while I'm in a meeting. We also homeschool, so I love being able to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the table with the family. Sometimes I get to help out and teach a history lesson or quiz my oldest on her math or check a spelling worksheet. I have a strong opinion that the creative professional works best when they have complete autonomy. And that offices really are just walls that companies put up to breed drama and control their people in exchange for snacks and ping pong. My dream has always been to find a way to get back to the pre-industrial revolution way of working and to blur the lines between my work life and my home life. And I'm grateful that I can do that. And I realize not everybody can, but where they can, specifically in creative careers, I hope most companies shift to this option. Not out of fear of viruses, but out of the desire to have the employees love their work and thrive. I think there's another thing that we can pull from all of this. While your digital art is important, as a creative, don't lose the wonder of creating things in real life. An artist is really just a recreator of that which has already been created. They take made things and make things. They might take the beauty of a landscape or a God-made thing and then recreate it through art. Or they might take inspiration from a building or a man-made thing and make a sculpture. I think at the core of an artist is just the ability to be aware and to see things that others fail to see. And then they recreate them so that they can't be unseen. When you make art that is real or can be hung on a wall, it carries with it the possibility of being echoed through time. When an artist creates, they listen to the whispers of their spirit. Move this here, more of this color, add this here. It's, it's a transcendent process because you're trusting that whisper. And when you work digitally, you aren't as dependent on the whisper as you would be if you were working with your hands or in real life. Because in digital, you can always just hit undo or go back. So you tend to work fast. You tend to be less aware. But with real craftsmanship, you are fully aware and fully dependent on that whisper. And when you make a mistake, it's there for the whole world to see. There's no hiding. So you have to be fully yourself with the art. The last thing I think we can pull from this is perhaps less about creative output and more about life. I think as we take the time to be aware of our surroundings and be grateful for them, we begin to cherish our existence and the contributions of others. We might find that we don't need 10 pairs of old navy jeans, but maybe only one really good pair that has a story to tell. Maybe they were made in your hometown or crafted with certain materials or practices that you care about. What if we put every potential purchase through this lens? Will this add to my life in terms of beauty and meaning? I'm not saying we need to make a big deal of our stuff. I'm saying that we have the opportunity to look at our stuff as the elements that we use in the backdrop to design our lives. Do you want to design your life to be surrounded by a hot mess of China-made plastic junk or overabundance? Or do you want to art direct your life and really edit down, live with simplicity and beauty and meaning? I know which one I want. 
And, you know, I fall prey to the same temptations when I look around at my house. I can feel the weight of having too much stuff. I can see that my, my list of needs is very small. And my list of wants, man, seems to grow by the day. So I'm on this journey as well of finding out how to tap out of the, of the life and the mindset that happiness is found in more stuff because it's just not. So this idea of stuff kind of comes full circle. And I think that the art and words of Eric Sloan serve as a good reminder to the artist designer, a reminder to stay connected to both the past and the future in your art. Instead of just creating for an immediate moment, the stuff that you make really has the potential to add to the world and make it a better place. Or it has the potential to subtract from the world and make it a worse place. And the choice, the choice is yours. Hey, thank you for spending this time with me. I, I know that we got a little more philosophical than usual, uh, but that's my tendency anyway. It still was fun. And be sure to join me next time right here on the Creative Pro Podcast.